You are listening to Sick Biz Buzz with me, Hillary Jastrom. Welcome to episode 20 of Sick Biz Buzz, the sickest podcast empowering chronically ill and disabled entrepreneurs, and the only podcast of its kind sponsored by Sick Biz and J Hill Marketing and Creative Services. I'm Hillary Jastrom, your host, and I hope you've got your seatbelt securely fastened. Our guest today is Brian King, a mindset coach for parents of children living with ADHD and Asperger's. He trains people from all walks of life on strategies he's learned and developed over the past 28 years. Strategies for becoming happier and unstoppable in the face of adversity. Brian lives with ADHD himself, Asperger's, dyslexia, Ehlers-Danlos, and multiple sclerosis. Not to mention he's raising three sons with Asperger's and ADHD. Please welcome Brian King. Welcome to the show, Brian King. You're here. You're live. It's going to be a heck of a show today. Hey, I know it's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I know. We already had fun. I mean, we we were doing pre-fun before the show. It's good to warm up. Otherwise, you pull something and then the rest of your day is ruined. <laughs> that's spoken only as an entrepreneur living with some challenges can explain and I completely understand that we've got to we have to be a little careful when we get rolling but we have so much energy we have so much excitement today I can't wait to let our listeners get to know you you have started your own business while dealing with a few challenges you didn't just start a company for financial reasons, but you are dedicated to helping a very special niche of people. Can you share a little bit more about your journey, your health, and the business decisions that you've made that have led you to where you are today? Oh, that's pretty easy. Thanks for encapsulating it and structuring it so beautifully. <laughs> I grew up with undiagnosed Asperger's, ADHD, and dyslexia. So school was really, really rough. I didn't really hit my stride until college because I chose social work as a profession. And my learning style is dominantly auditory. And a lot of what I learned was driven by cat, by a class discussion, group projects. So it really lent itself to my auditory learning style. So I was a sponge. I did really, really well in college. Excellent. And I, right out of college, I got a job working for hospice, which I did for five years and really enjoyed it. The politics were a little suffocating and really held me back. I started a family. And when my oldest boy entered first grade, he went into crisis within the first month. Mm -hmm. And he was diagnosed with Asperger's, sensory integration challenges, a lot of mood regulation difficulty. So he really wasn't situated for that environment. And the school didn't want to help him. They wanted us to medicate him and teach him to shut up and behave right and be a good little boy. That wasn't going to fly. And his struggles, because I was being called to the school several times a week, either to come pick him up early or talk him, talk him out from a meltdown or a tantrum or from running from the classroom. And it was beginning to interfere with my day job. And my boss was not happy. Simultaneously, because I don't believe in coincidences, Simultaneously, I was attending a parent group for parents with kids with Asperger's. And by this time, I knew that, that I had Asperger's and I understood my own psychology very well. I was getting to learn Zach. And these parents in the group were guessing. 
they were throwing out advice to one another about what to do with their kid about this and that. And I kept saying, you know, excuse me, can I chime in here? I think this is what's happening. And they would go home and apply what I said, and they were getting better results from my two cents than they were getting from the person they were paying every week for the past five years. And when they learned I was a social worker, they said, hey, where's your office? We wanted to bring our kids to you. I didn't have an office. I had a day job. So enough of them were thrilled with my insight that they really got on my case for about a good year and a half to open up shop. Well, between Zachary's needs and the, my job becoming shakier, I said, what the heck? I'll give it a go. So part-time, you know, I hung up my shingle in the evenings, part-time working Monday through Friday after work, part-time on Saturday. In four months, I'd replace my daytime income, so I quit my day job. <laughs> These are the stories that we love to hear about because it is not only possible to quit your day job as an entrepreneur who is dealing with some health challenges, it is not only possible to quit it, it is possible to prosper in it. Yeah, and this was and, 10 years ago. Yeah, that's amazing. That's amazing. So since then, you have you've gotten on to a theme or you've discovered a mindset strategy, which I think is really fascinating. So you're not just a coach in terms of you're going to help parents uh, with children who have ADHD and Asperger's, but you have a particular and trademarked system that you use. Yeah, I have an approach that's referred to as mindset before skill set. Because, uh, and I see parents still wanting to work this way with me. They want to work reactively. You know, we'll call you when there's a crisis, when there's a fire to put out. I said, oh, so you're going to teach your kid to live a reactive life instead of a proactive one. Yeah, you know, we want our kids to learn how to plan, how to set goals, how to manage their life. We just don't want them to wait for stuff to happen and then react to it. So I, go ahead. Do you think there are misperceptions? Pertaining to that, and when a child is diagnosed with ADHD and or Asperger's, do you think that a parent begins from a scarcity mindset feeling that those children now have limitations and they don't know how to speak to them or communicate with them? Well, the, the medical model encourages it mm -hmm. because the diagnostic criteria are all about this is what your kid can't do. This is where they're disabled. This is what they're, they're struggling Sometimes there's the conversation around, well, here's what services are available, here's some books you can read, but rarely does a professional say, okay, now we have a target. Now we know what we're looking at. Now we know where to begin. Let's create a plan based on these opportunities we're now presented with. It's rarely an approach from an abundance mindset. And one thing that I really want to impress upon parents of these kids is that we live in a world of 7 billion people mm -hmm. that are more and more connected as the day goes on. I don't care about the one kid that didn't look at you right in class. You know, when you think about that kind of stuff and you make that the entirety of your experience and you generalize it and say, oh, people hate me. Really? How many of them do you know? We've got to always look bigger. We do. And, and we always have to move beyond. And I was talking with a friend about this today. 
we have to move beyond the loss of hope based on what other people have experienced or based on what your doctor is telling you or even based on the information that you feed yourself about your own body's quote-unquote inability. So what I mean by that is when you have a condition, you have a disease or a disability, you start to tell yourself different truths about that. And so then you stop challenging yourself. And the, and I think that's very true of parents who have children with ADHD, Asperger's, a processing disorder, et cetera. And my son, my middle son, um, has ADHD and a processing disorder. So what you're talking about is ringing true. And it's not, you know, everybody, a lot of parents say nowadays, well, all kids have ADHD because nobody can pay attention. The actual clinical diagnosis of it is very different than just the uh, bandwagon ADHD. Well, not only that, but having a focus issue doesn't mean it has the same cause as ADHD. Right. And, you know, just because it looks like a duck and, you know, it could be a goose, you know. Yeah, right. There are similarities, but there are also huge differences. And don't say, well, I have a hard time focusing. Well, maybe you have a hard time prioritizing, but that's not the same thing. You know, people who don't know what they want in life will seem scattered. That's not ADHD. No, that that has a lot to do with some organizational challenges. And and, and that's the danger of uh, I think there's been a lot of misdiagnoses as well. There's been, um, well, my son was diagnosed with ADHD, but, you know, he's just being a boy. Uh, wouldn't all the boys then in 1950s be characterized in the same way? What do you think about that type of, of perception in society? Well, anytime you generalize and minimize you do a tremendous injustice to everybody that you include in that group because you no longer see them as an individual. You no longer ask, hey, what do you need? Yeah. Why is this a difficulty for you? How can I support you? You're just throwing it into a junk drawer and saying it doesn't matter because it's normal. Right. Everybody's like this. Really? So I'm just supposed to struggle for the rest of my life. I'm not supposed to learn anything to make my life easier because everybody's like this. It, it does not serve anybody to generalize. So you live with ADHD and Asperger's yourself. And uh -huh. does that allow you to better relate to these parents? Because you are a parent with children who have Asperger's and ADHD. You have three sons. And then you yourself has have it. So do you offer a different um, kind of a point of view that's much more empathetic and even sympathetic to these parents than other people? Oh, it's more than that, because I relentlessly pursue greater and deeper understanding of it. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are people that they they know what they read in the books they participate in the parent group on Facebook where they spend a lot of time complaining about their the teacher and all this. And they keep a very superficial understanding of what it means. And it tends to be a very emotional, reactive understanding of what it means. But I go after it like I'm an archaeologist on a dig. I want to 
I want to understand every nuance. Whenever I do something that I don't understand, I ask why that? And I look into it as deeply as I can. I meditate daily. I journal. I read books. I talk to colleagues. And I leave myself open to other people's feedback about, you know, Brian, when you do this, it really annoys the hell out of me. And then I have to reflect upon it and talk to them and get feedback about how I'm being perceived by others. So there are all these input channels that I'm using because if I want to help somebody remove as many barriers within themselves as possible, I've got to go first. Yeah. That's excellent. And that is a strong, strong statement. I've got to go first. That's something that we talk about here, too. The importance of going first, not only for yourself and emboldening yourself and your courage, but you're modeling to other people and reassuring them and validating. You can go first, too. You can do things or I'm paving the way for you because I want you to join me. So I, so I love that. I think you've just uh, reverse engineered this and just uh, even gone a layer deeper. So let's switch over to you for a second. You have ADHD, Asperger's, dyslexia, Ehlers-Danlos, and multiple sclerosis. So you're an entrepreneur who is living with these challenges. That is incredible. but it really is but it really is and um i think there is an ingredient that is in common with people who have these challenges or challenges because like we talk about everybody has challenges Somebody, some people have more, some people have less, but everybody has challenges that affect them to a very deep degree. They could be mental health challenges. They could be physical challenges. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. It could be financial challenges. It could be relationship challenges. Um, and these are things that we work on every single day. Now, for people who are listening right now and they're in awe of you, I'm a little in awe of you. I have to say that. Well, I'm sure there's some kind of medication for that. You? <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so sick of medication. <laughs> but I just want to say, but that's a disclaimer, by the way. I'm, you know, me personally, I'm trying not to be on medication, although I do take some. Um, but never turn your back on a tool that can help you. So I have to make sure that. Oh we... yeah, I'm on plenty of meds. Mm-hmm, absolutely, and and there's no shame in that. There's no shame in that. If that is a tool that helps you manage and helps you live and reduces pain and things of that nature, then absolutely a million percent. So that was a little joke, everybody. Well, I, I just got to <laughs> put out there that if there's any shame in it, the shame comes from the story you're telling yourself about why you shouldn't need it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a whole conversation in itself. Well, let's dig into that. Let's dig into that for a minute. So well, can, I, can, I, can I back up a little bit about something? Yeah, of course. One thing that I didn't throw in there, which a lot of people miss about my story, is that I had cancer when I was 18. It was okay. my graduation present from high school. I was diagnosed uh, three weeks before graduation. Had surgery, had my finals, graduated, a blood test, 
uh, a month after graduation, it showed that the cancer was back and spreading like wildfire. So I spent my summer in chemotherapy and my peer group imploded. My girlfriend broke up with me. My family being dysfunctional as they are, American Midwest, didn't handle it well. So it was a disaster emotionally and psychologically. So when I emerged from all that, angry, bitter, pissed, mm-hmm. heartbroken, I had to get my life back together. And I began working with a social worker who showed me compassion, patience, helped me learn to hope and trust again. And when I finally started finding my grounding, I decided that I'm living on borrowed time. You know, I never know when my life will be threatened again. I never know if it's going to happen in a blink or if it's going to be in a process, I cannot afford to screw around. I cannot settle for mediocrity. What I do in this world has got to make an impact or nothing at all. So this idea of slacking, of giving into fear, of self-doubt, not that I don't have those moments, I sure do, but they don't dominate me. They don't last long. And that's probably what really, really drives me is that sense that I don't have tomorrow. If I'm going to do something, let it be meaningful. It's um, it's very eye-opening when you receive a diagnosis because that of what you've told yourself for years past, you know, when people get cancer, for example, um, or any type of disease that's frightening and progressive, um, I think what we do is put distance, especially when we're younger, we put distance between ourselves and that person. Not that we believe we'll catch cancer or anything of that nature, but that we don't want to be associated with such suffering and we don't want to know that can be us. Oh, yeah. There there are many people that I reconnected with after many years who mm -hmm. just said they didn't know how to handle seeing me in that condition. Yes. Yes, and it and it brings your own mortality so much closer to you. So when you do receive a diagnosis, that rips the lid off of this myth that you're invincible. It it's just, you know, you're floored for a minute, you're stunned when you hear what the doctor has to say, but at the same time, you get to a point of acceptance where you go, "Well, why wouldn't that be me? I'm a person." Why wouldn't I be affected by some environmental or genetic thing or whatever, or just the plain fact that everybody dies? Yeah, you have to really accept your own humanity and its fragility and vulnerability. But that requires you giving up that wonderful story about how as long as you play it safe, make perfect decisions, and whatever else you want to believe to think that you are invulnerable, impenetrable. But it's living with the knowledge of that fragility that connects you with everybody else. We're all human. We're all trying to figure this out. We're all trying to find tools and insights to manage the suffering that comes along with the human condition. And in that experience, there are no strangers because we all have that in common. So you went from having to manage at a young age to being a cancer survivor And did you start to work on your mindset then, on your survival mindset, your realistic, you know, you talked about you don't 
last long in those periods of self-doubt, self-recrimination and things of that nature. Was that just a natural intrinsic trait you have or? Well, I've, I've been reflective by nature ever since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. always wondering why, always looking to the stars, always asking questions. So I've never been satisfied with not having an answer. I bugged this not out of my mom as a kid. Questions, questions, questions. And of course, we didn't have Google back then. Oh, yeah. So it was, you know, (laughs) forget about it that, you know, I don't know the answer. You know, leave me alone. You're talking so much. But I lived two blocks from the public library when I was a kid. So I could always walk down. I'd spend hours in the, the stacks perusing books. And when I was going through a chemo and I was just searching for for solutions, nobody had any answers for me. You know, a lot of pleasantries that solve no problems. So on my better days in between chemo sessions, I'd go to the library and I started looking at philosophy books and self-help and religion, just scouring, looking for answers. And I found, I discovered Zen Buddhism for the first time and Taoist thinking and read stuff by, you know, uh, the late Wayne Dyer. And I found so many answers. And what I was drawn to the most was this transiency of life. Everything comes, everything goes. You know, don't be attached, let it go. Focus on the moment. Focus on the connection here and now with other people. And that's really one of the strengths of the work that I do now. When I post anything on Facebook or Twitter, much of what that's driven by is how do I connect with somebody right here and right now with the language that I choose? And anybody that that sees it may say, hey, I really connect with this. This really resonates with me today. And that's what lets me know I'm doing it right. That's amazing. And, you know, I love that. I'm very much into themes and what the universe is trying to teach us transiency is so important because we get attached to the wrong results. We get attached to these fear-based realities that we live because they're safe, but telling ourselves, and sometimes we have to physically and verbally, we have to say it out loud. I am going to let it go and I am going to move on. So you started early. You started younger than I would suspect. And, uh, you know, I have a 24 year old. Um, and I, and I, so I know that that age, while they are a legal adult or whatever, still seems kind of immature to me, but you began trying to change your thinking in that manner. And so have you been, I guess we'll call it brain training yourself ever for since. all of these years? Yeah. Ever since. Mm-hmm. So like the last 28 years, I've been absolutely immersed in finding every undiscovered corner of my psyche, of my spirit, of my emotions, because I want a mastery of myself so that whenever I work with someone, whatever they're up against, I can help them unblock it because I don't want to send them away partially ready. You know, I want them to be able to maximize all of their opportunities to create the results they want because they've got so many challenges already. You know, the difficulty that comes along with ADHD and Asperger's and the the sensory issues. So being able to unlock every little morsel, every little internal resource they've got so they can work around this stuff, that's my ultimate goal. But again, I've got to go first. And the cool thing is the layers seem to never end. 
no matter how much I look within myself, there's always something I've missed. So it's and like the journey's going to take me to my last breath. And I find that exciting. That's just astounding. And so you apply all these teachings that you put yourself through to the people and the children and the parents of the children that you help. Yep. So you are your own guinea pig. Yeah, that's the way of putting it. But I'm much <laughs> kinder than most experimenters are to guinea pigs. I'm much yes. more compassionate. <laughs> PETA would approve of the... <laughs> that's not, I'm going to get a tattoo that says PETA certified. Oh, my God. I will pay you $20. <laughs> oh, they cost a heck of a lot more than that. Maybe. I know. I just, I, you know. We'll go halvesies. We'll go halvesies. All right, perfect. No, I think that's uh, I think that's incredible, and it's really a look into the uh, efficacy, and I probably said that word wrong, of these programs and systems and treatments, and the way that we approach healing. When you have somebody who is, because you're going first, you're going first and saying, "Listen, I'm doing it." I'm doing it. I'm learning how to slow my focus. I'm learning different controls. I'm learning that there are good and bad qualities. I don't like to use the word bad, but there are there are stronger qualities than than some qualities aren't as strong or there are ways to communicate with people in this particular fashion. And so you are debunking that stigma and peeling it apart to show people these diagnoses don't mean you can't be successful. And even that you can't be emotional. There seems to be, especially with the Asperger's, there seems to be a perception that Asperger's are, um, now are they on the autism spectrum? Well, Asperger's is part of the autism spectrum, even though it was removed from the DSM, which was a catastrophe, mm. a, a blunder in the, the hands of the psychiatric community. A lot of older adults that were diagnosed with that first have held on to the label, which I applaud. I do as well. Mm -hmm. it's, it's now, autism is now on this continuum and you're somewhere along the continuum, which is you know very core way of looking at it. But as far as the emotions goes, keep in mind that with ADHD and Asperger's, one of the qualities is the all or nothing thinking. Mm -hmm. It's either black or it's white. So what options does that give you emotionally? I don't feel or I feel everything. And a lot of people with this kind of thinking don't like that kind of intensity. They don't want to feel in a rage. They don't want to laugh so hard that it hurts. So they keep themselves contained. So one of the goals for them is to find that continuum of their own emotional experience and find that middle ground where they can laugh without being hysterical, where they can be frustrated but not furious. So mm -hmm. that's, that's one of the essential pieces of work for us. And that's fascinating. And that is groundbreaking, too. I haven't heard any, anyone else who is approaching it from this fashion and being led with somebody who truly not just empathizes, but sympathizes. And so I want to touch on uh, your other conditions as well, because now did these diagnoses, these came later in life. Isn't yeah. that correct? Okay. The, um, the Ehlers-Danlos I learned about five years ago and 
the, the MS was just diagnosed this past summer, even though I've been having symptoms since 2011. Yeah, that's usually how it goes, isn't it? You just have to yeah. get lucky enough to get to roll the dice and get another lesion through space and time. Yeah, yeah. it was a total fluke how I got diagnosed with EMS, but you know, that's another story. It's a, well, you can share it if you want to. Well, <laughs> I I have kidney disease, which we think was a result. Well, it's a result of two things. One of my chemo drugs was toxic to my kidneys. So we knew it was going to cause some problems. We just didn't know to what degree. Then I had a benign tumor on one of my adrenal glands that was causing this, a huge amount of a hormone to be dumped into my system. And it kept my blood pressure so high for years that it damaged my kidneys significantly. And it was blood tests that discovered the kidney disease. So I started getting treated for that. Well, there was one day over the summer where I was having a lot of symptoms. I was sick on the couch and I could barely move and my lower back hurt. And I called my doctor and he says, man, we want to make sure your kidneys aren't going bad. Go to the ER. And I went in, of course, my wife took me and I was having some neurological changes I wasn't aware of. Mm -hmm. I would think that I was saying something, but the wrong words would come out. And my wife was catching me. So as the doctors were examining me and asking about things, she brought that up. And I looked at her like, why didn't you tell me about this? So we ended up having a conversation about that later, but I was fuzzy, foggy, disoriented. And I thought, hey, you know, my kidneys were failing and my blood's full of poison. Well, that wasn't it. And so they were looking through my old records, taking all kinds of blood tests and stuff. But because of the neurological changes, they asked a neurologist to come and look at me. And again, I don't believe in coincidences. Somewhere along the lines of last year, one of the major health systems in the, the country started buying up local hospitals, including the one I was going to. So they networked all the computer systems. In 2011, I had gone to the ER with numbness in my hands and in my feet. Mm. They, they did some MRI on me to see if I you know I was having a stroke or anything. Well, I wasn't. So they sent me home. What they didn't tell me is that there were lesions on that MRI. Oh. Because that's not what they were looking for. So I never heard about it. But that hospital that I had that MRI in was now part of this large network. It was one of the hospitals that was swallowed up by this big conglomerate. So the hospital I was at now was networked with that other hospital. So my MRI is something that can be pulled up on the computer. So when he's looking through my files, he pulls up that MRI from 2011 and said, hey, anybody ever talking about these lesions? I said, what are you talking about? And he turns the screen and shows me. I'm like, nobody ever said anything to me about that. And now we're in 2017. So yeah. he says, you know, with all these symptoms you have, I want to admit you and I want to do MRI of your brain and your whole spine. Well, we did all that, and what we found out is now my brain had six lesions in it. Oh. And I was having you know, all these symptoms and more tests and blood tests and spinal taps, and all the results came back, and yeah, it's MS. And how did you feel? <clears throat> I know that's a, maybe a dumb question, oh, but... I was when pissed. You I was pissed for a while. Mm -hmm. Because by that time, I was having more difficult time walking my hands were charming like crazy. It was hard for me to hold stuff. There were days where my hands were shaking 
so badly, I could not reach into the cabinet to get my pillbox down. Oh, goodness. Because I just couldn't get them into the, the vicinity. So I would have to ask somebody, hey, can you open this jar for me? Can you get this out of the cabinet? Now the stuff I've been doing since then, my tremoring happens on occasion. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not nearly as bad. I'm using something now called CBD oil. Ah, and when I, my... I, I, have to, I have to tell you, I just ordered my first bottle last week. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. When I start tremoring, I take a few shots of that and the tremoring calms down. If my nerve pain breaks through at night, my regular meds aren't working, three shots of the CBD and starts quieting down and I can go to sleep. Wow. I so it's not, wonderful. Uh, Brian, I cannot wait. I am telling you what, my feet hurt so bad at night. It is that I just lay there while they burn and burn and burn. Oh, that's one of the worst symptoms I have is yeah. the burning in my legs at night. Yep. Oh, I hear you. And that really works, huh? That CBD? Oh, yeah. It's a gem. All right. I'm just going to put this out here right now. We need a sponsorship from a CBD oil company. I just want to put that out there because you know what? I mentioned on my Facebook page because, you know, I'm super shy. So I mentioned that I ordered this CBD oil. I must have at least 10 people right now who want to order it because everybody, and I share this statistic um, with people when I go on different podcasts and stuff like that, when I write about it and whatever, is in 2015, the CDC denoted that half of Americans are chronically ill. That's 2015. We're looking three years into the future and environmentally, we continue to suck. Genetically, we continue to grow older. So, you know, absolutely that number has gone up. So CBD oil companies that are listening, get in on the ground floor of this podcast and this nonprofit and help people. We've got, we've got like a whole pocket of people right here who are hurting and need that help. So I just had to do that little shout out. I'm getting used to asking for money. <laughs> That's a very healthy ask. Yes, it is a very healthy ask. And and I, I want to dive into a couple more things. Um, and I could just talk to you all day and we'll definitely have you back because I think there you're like a seven layer German chocolate cake. Oh, do you, you don't even know everything. My, my, when my birthday comes around every single year, the only thing I ask for, I don't want a party, I don't want presents. All I want is a homemade German chocolate cake. <laughs> there are no coincidences ever. Nope. <laughs> Just ever. So you were pissed when you were diagnosed with MS. I don't blame you because, and you know, it's funny because in 2012, um, I was walking, it was very hot summer. I was walking with, uh, right now she's my mother-in-law at the time. She was my, my boyfriend's mother. I was walking with her and, uh, now my husband around this little lake, it was sweltering and I started to lose sensation in my feet and I started to kind of stagger and I went to the neurologist and did the whole battery. You know, you ride in the MRI machine for funsies, um, and they didn't find anything. And I, but they did find the transverse myelitis in 2014 when the symptoms came raging back. I have never been convinced that that wasn't the start in 2012. 
Oh, I'm, I'm sure it was. I don't know how the transverse myelitis looks, but not only does it have to be big enough to notice, mm -hmm. but it has to be big enough to where the person reading it thinks it's big enough to be a problem. Yes. And for MS, you have to do it twice. The McDonald's scale of uh, diagnosis, and I'm sure I'm not saying that right, but it's, it's two lesions across space and time is the current diagnostic procedure that they follow. So if you went in with two lesions one time and they caused a battery of symptoms, that's not MS. But if you have time elapsed and you grew another lesion and you developed different symptoms, so now you have two sets of symptoms and two lesions over two different spaces of time, then you get your MS diagnosis. Well, I'm a total overachiever then. Well, you are. Well, you are. And I'm lazy because I won't grow another lesion. Like, they're like, we don't know why you have these other symptoms. Get growing another lesion. I'm like, no, I won't do it. I'm not. Yeah, give <laughs> us something that fits within the box that we've decided is the criteria for whatever it is you've got. And a lot of these, I do appreciate the standardization of it. You know, that there are these things that we follow in order to make sure we're doing it correctly. But it doesn't allow for individual differences. You know, just like with ADHD or Asperger's, like, well, it can't be that because you're too talkative or you're friendly. And no, let's not get caught up in one detail. Right. You have yeah. to remember the whole picture. But, you know, thank God I was dealing with people that really knew their stuff and were seasoned in this. So they, they were, knew what they were looking at when they saw it. Well, and you're lucky, too, because so many people do not get a good neurologist. They do not get a compassionate doctor. They get someone that, that starts uh, seeing dollar signs. They're affiliated with Big Pharma, and they start pushing all kinds of medication at them. This is a lifelong commitment to this medication. But I want to jump back in time. So you're diagnosed. You're pissed. But as you said, you don't stay there. And this is very key for people listening, especially when you have to work for yourself. You can't work for somebody else because you need to control your time, your energy, your schedule so that you can work. You don't have the luxury of being able to stay pissed and even being able to wallow. I don't want to say wallow, but fully immerse no, yourself into that. Well, sometimes, well, but you, you need. So you look at the trajectory of MS is you're going to end up in a wheelchair, you know, totally unable to take care of yourself and move around. I said, that's unacceptable. Mm -hmm. You know, I've got three kids to raise. I've got a mortgage to pay for. I've got a family dependent on me. This outcome is unacceptable to me. So I immersed myself in what I could find in the literature. And I didn't like what I was reading about the pharmaceutical treatments. I happened to have one of those treatments and it incapacitated me. Yeah. So I knew that the medical route was not going to work. So I started looking into diet. I'm working with a gentleman now who's totally having me go as much plant-based in my eating as possible. Mm -hmm. That's made a huge difference in my focus, my energy level, just feeling well overall. I'm not a hundred percent, but I'm a vast improvement mm -hmm. and being able to still produce and provide and not let this overtake me. Those are very important goals for me that I'm not just going to sit back and let life happen. Right. You know, that's something, that's a decision that I made back in when I was coming out of cancer and one kind of epiphany or belief that I developed 
because I was always searching for ways to explain to my boys why their challenges were gifts. Yeah. Why having ADHD and Asperger's were gifts. And what I came up with was they're not opportunities to be limited. There's not reasons to be limited. What these diagnoses, what these challenges are, are opportunities to be resourceful. Because yeah. now you are presented with this opportunity to learn how to solve a problem in a creative way. And there's also, there's two sides to everything. So, and I would not know this unless my son had demonstrated it. So he does have ADHD. I thought the hyperactivity component of it encompassed him running around the house and screaming. That's, you know, I didn't understand that his consistent fidgeting, his need to, um, you know, when you're talking to him, can't hold still. He needs to pace or he needs to walk. So these are some misperceptions as well. But what I learned from him, and this is why I love children, because they teach us so much. If we allow them to, they teach us so much. I watched him absolutely turn on that hyperfocus. Like I have never seen, I've watched that boy churn out a web page, uh, marketing. He's a history buff. And these are things that if, if you don't have a child or you yourself don't have ADHD, you wouldn't know. But there is a really blessed component to this condition. Oh, there are many. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And what people don't realize is that the hyperactivity is first and foremost a busy mind. It's not always something that you can see. The girls tend to have the busy mind, but they don't have the busy body. Mm, okay. So there are some that they're not hyperactive. No, that's not true. They don't have a busy body, but they're very hyper internally. So even there's a lot that's going on diagnostically that's wrong. Mm -hmm. So maybe at, at some point I'll be able to have some conversations with people that are in the know in that regard and be able to inform the way they diagnose these things in the future. But so much work has to continue to be done. We're coming right. around to the end, but I want to ask you the question that I ask every single guest. It kind of puts you on the spot a little bit, but it's funny. So, <laughs> and you're a natural comedian, so you're going to roll with it. I, I know it. Um, what is the one thing people don't know about you? That I'm psychic. Are you really psychic? Yeah. Are you? Okay, so give us an example. Give us a, well, an event. I'm, I'm highly intuitive mm -hmm. when it comes to just be able to, and it's not a matter of reading between the lines. It's being able to look within a person and see something that they were afraid of, whether they're even showing it or not. Because there are people that are really good at, playing the part and no, oh, no, everything is hunky dory and something will just kind of appear in my mind where I'll say, yeah, but what about this? I'm getting this impression or how would you answer this question? So I'll just, I'll posit something that will encourage them to look at that place within themselves. And the question will seem random from me. They won't know where it came from. Or there are times when I'll check in with somebody on Facebook I'll just say, you know what? I haven't talked to this person in a while. And I'll check in with them and they'll say, you know what? I was thinking about reaching out to you. We got this going on right now and it's really difficult and maybe we can get on the phone. So I'm just really tuned in somehow 
to when somebody needs something and typically exactly what that need is, whether it's obvious or not. Well, 28 years of sharpening those tools. I mean, you have, you've, you've traversed into a different realm in a way because you're moving past everything that people think they know. And so I, I think it's fascinating. I think a lot of it has to do with your spirituality and just honoring what you intuitively feel when you reach out to people. Like I'm a huge, we could talk about this for days on end because I'm a huge believer in spiritual energy, what we put out and even trusting what we're attracting. Absolutely. What Making sure that I stay in that place where I attract abundance is a critical part of my daily practice. Brian King, you are an incredible person that just broke through so many boundaries in one short sitting and uh, completely compelling. We'd love to have you back to go even deeper into some of these things. Talk about even more of the intuition that our entrepreneurs can apply to themselves to help them find greater success. Thank you so much for being with us today. It has been an absolute delight, Hillary. Brian King has been forged in the fire of chronic conditions, and we are in awe of his mental stamina. He models wonderfully how to shift your perspective from your internal reality to helping others externally while refocusing on a larger and more meaningful purpose. Please get in touch with him at brianraymondking.com and join his Facebook group, Unstoppable ADHD ASD Alliance, to find the support you need if you or someone you know is living with one or both of these conditions. Did you like what you heard? Please subscribe, share, and leave a review for the Sick Biz Buzz podcast, wherever podcasts are available, Apple or Stitcher, for example. Don't forget to check out sickbiz.com, where you will enjoy stories, hacks, and tips from over 20 guest bloggers who are running their own businesses with challenges just like yours, and business and life coaches who simply want to make your life easier to live. If you would like to speak to a member of the SickBiz team, please send an email to sickbizco at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. Be well.